As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us on the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Woodruff-Tate, Managing Editor at Christian History Magazine. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to be here. Well, we've already spoken to you a little bit on another podcast that I present, Unapologetic, where we talked a little bit more about your life. But given that this is the C.S. Lewis podcast, we're going to be focusing on this wonderful issue that you did. Of, I'm a matching you've got coffee. a matching coffee. <laughs> for those of you who are just listening, we're holding up the issue of Christian History Magazine, which features C.S. Lewis. The whole issue was around C.S. Lewis, but you'd actually already... Um, not not you as managing editor, but Christian History Magazine had already done two issues specifically on Lewis, hadn't you? And I think it was 1985 and 2005. And he'd obviously featured fairly heavily in other issues. So why did you decide to do one more issue on C.S. Lewis? Well, for one thing, it's one of, uh, he's one of the people that most often, even though we had published other issues on him, uh, people would uh, would write in and ask about the um, the. Uh, Issue from 1985 was done without explaining at too much length the, the complicated history of a Christian history magazine. It was it started out at Christian History Institute, where it is now. Um, it was it then went to Christianity Today, and then after the economic downturn in 2008, it the rights reverted back to Christian History Institute. So, in Christian History Institute, in you know now in about 2021, when we started talking about this, we didn't have access to. Oh, either of the other two issues. Right. The first one had been done so long ago that although there are a few copies, it was I, I have one. It was quite rare. Um, and the second one had been done by Christianity Today. And, you know, when they send all the old copies and when those were gone, they were gone. And so although all of the resources were available for free on our website, which is true about all of our issues, going back all the way to issue one, you can go under our website and read any of the articles. There wasn't anything print that uh, that could... Um, you know, the people wanted to, you know, go, you know, read with a cup of tea or whatever, sure. you know, or, you know, this part of a subscription. And so, uh, so my, uh, my boss, Bill Curtis, uh, you know, said, well, you know, we really, we really need to go back and do this again. And there's been a ton of scholarship on Lewis, like, you know, it keeps exploding. So there was a lot that was done between 1985 and 2005. And then there was a lot that was done between 2005 and, and this issue. And so, you know, I wanted, we wanted to do something that wasn't, 
the same as all of those. And we hit on this idea of, of Lewis in relationship to his most important relationships. So as son, father, husband, brother, friend, mentor. Uh, but that also allowed us to hit some of the high points for people who might not know about Lewis before, um, you know, before they encountered this issue. I love that you mentioned a cup of tea there. That's very British. I feel like Lewis would be very happy with that, yeah. sitting well, down the- and reading about him with a cup of tea. <laughs> My husband's British, so uh, we, there's the Shetland Islands behind me on the, on the chair there. Uh, his, his family's actually from from Shetland. But uh, yeah, so that when I began dating, dating Edwin, he introduced me to cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jennifer, you sort of mentioned in the beginning, in your editorial of the magazine, that Lewis continues to poll high on the list when you ask people what they want to see in the magazine. Why do you think that is? Why is Lewis such a popular figure when it comes to Christian history? A couple of reasons, I think. One is that although this is, this gets less and less the case uh, as as we get sort of further and further from Lewis's prose style, um, you know, in in our style today, but you know, he's a very clear writer. Um, now, I've heard people say, "Well, I don't know what's going on in mere Christianity," which, considering that it was written for like you know uneducated soldiers uh-huh. originally, uh-huh. I, I maybe. We need we need to sort of get back up to that speed here. I don't know, but but basically, you know, a lot of a lot of you know his his nonfiction, his apologetics. You know, when you compare him to other other people, uh, many other people of Zira, um, well, yeah, it's very sort of clear and straightforward. And then I think there's you know his fiction. It's just amazing. I mean, yeah. I, I love Lewis's nonfiction, uh, but I love his I love his fiction. I think the imaginative world that he creates you whether it's a space trilogy or narnia you know it 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 takes hold of people it takes hold of people even who aren't christians and they just Mm -hmm. think this is a really good story this guy knew how to write just a a cracking good story he would have said you know (laughs) with interesting characters and interesting events and beautiful descriptions uh so you know when you start reading lewis oftentimes i think he just kind of catches hold of your imagination that way and you want to know more know more about him now, you were already a big fan of C.S. Lewis before editing this issue, but is there anything that you discovered during the making of the issue that particularly surprised you or interested you that, or, or that you just didn't know before? I wouldn't say so much that I didn't know exactly, but uh, one of the things is that there's about you know, sort of six pictures of Lewis that circulate that you see mostly. And yeah. so we were working with the Wade Center um, at Wheaton, Wheaton College um, in the U.S., and they have access to a number of pictures and so that we were able to print because we were working with them. I mean, we did have to, you know, contract and pay for them, but it was just so much easier to access them. So at one point, uh, the archivist there email, emails our picture researcher and says, well, here's all the pictures that are, you know, that you can start looking at. And there were baby pictures. Wow. And I'm like, I've never seen, I mean, like, there's, like, one picture that gets printed and everything's like, I've never seen baby pictures of C.S. Lewis. So, while I was talking about the issue to people, and like, you know, here are these wonderful articles by these well-renowned scholars, and also we have C.S. Lewis's baby pictures. <laughs> um, and there's a picture of him playing, well, he isn't actually playing tennis, but he's, like, you know, with a bunch of people who've played tennis and having a picnic, and there's a picture of him, like, riding in the same sidecar on Warney's motorcycle that he was riding in that he says, in surprise by joy, when he came to believe, you know, in Jesus Christ, and and so one of the greatest uh, things that I think this issue did, in addition to in addition to the articles, is so many pictures that no one has ever seen before yeah. uh, we were able to print. And so it, it just really helped um, help sort of, it's not just all oh, the great author, it sort of humanized him for me. Like I've seen two-year-old C.S. Lewis sitting yeah. you know, on the steps of, you know, it's like he, he just, you know, he was a kid. 
I guess you, know, you don't know really, comes off this. Yeah, you don't really think of him like that, do you? You just sort of think he yeah. was born a, a this incredible genius who just was yeah. Right. I don't know if I of course people who are looking at it will be able to to see, but yeah, this is the one I'm talking about. Whoops. Very cute. Very cute C. S. Lewis. Yeah, very cute baby C.S. Lewis. Cute baby C.S. Lewis. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you got into C.S. Lewis. What was your sort of first foray into to, into Lewis? Uh, well, when I was uh, when I was a kid, my mother loved C.S. Lewis. My dad too, but my mother more. And so there were just always his books, books about him at our house. I read Narnia at an early age. I actually didn't come to love Narnia as much as I do now till I had kids. Okay. Um, which is, and my husband like told the stories to our kids and then eventually read the books to them. But um, you know, but I I, I liked it. Um, and so he was just sort of like always part of my mental furniture. Um, and when I was fourteen. My grandpa died, and my mother, uh, one of the ways in which she dealt with her dad dying was by reading A Grief Observed. And so then I read A Grief Observed, you know, and I was like, wow, this is really good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and so just the older, and then the uh, the older I got, the more I encountered other things. When I was in college, I read the Space Trilogy. And it, it, he was just sort of like always a person whose works I knew and who, um, you know, who sort of helped shape uh, my imagination. Then because of reading him, then I got into Tolkien, who I also love, but this is not the Tolkien podcast, but yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they were great friends. They were, were yeah, they allowed were, yeah, to they, talk about yeah, Tolkien. They, they, yeah, they were they were friends. And yeah, and so, uh, you know, so then, you know, Tolkien is now also very much part of my, my mental furniture. Now, you mentioned in the magazine that when you read Mere Christianity, you were really excited because you realized that you can be smart and still be a Christian. I mean, that's obviously the case for Lewis, but why was it so important for you that that Lewis was a smart, intelligent Christian? I, I mean, I, I knew a lot. I, I knew a lot of smart, intelligent Christians. I mean, my parents were mm-hmm. intel- were you know smart, college educated, uh, graduate educated people. But uh, there, I felt not from all of my professors because many I, I did not go to a, a quote unquote Christian school, but many <laughs> of my professors were in fact Christians. Uh, but from those that weren't, you know, I felt a sort of denigration you know of of the idea like this is you know the christian religion is sort of like not for smart people because if you're smart you will you know sort of move on to these other things Uh, and so uh finding out that there was someone who sort of wasn't a member of my family who uh who was you know sort of famous for being smart about christianity and and who had written things that logically explained why christian doctrines were true you know, I, I I believed all the Christian doctrines, but it really helped me to see laid out, well, this is why, you know, we believe in the divinity of, of Christ. This is why the the crucifixion and the resurrection matter. This is mm-hmm. you know, this is this is why we you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, just all of those things. Uh just when I was in my late teens and early twenties, that was really profoundly important. I mean, you've definitely already outlined a lot of this, but what is it about C.S. Lewis that so inspires you? It's hard to pick one thing. That's yeah. why. That's why I'm puzzling. <laughs> um, if I had to pick one thing, I think it would just be his ability to pack so much into such simple sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's like a logical explanation of Christ's divinity, or whether it's an imaginative sentence describing what happens when you, when Eustace is on dragon, you know, and it, 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 it's just, you, you re, I read it and I'm like, I, I want to be able to do that when I grow up. I mean, I know I'm growing up, but you know, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the sort of prose that can take very, very complex ideas and boil them down into something so simple and beautiful. Um, you know, that, that was an incredible talent. 
you know, and he, you know, he used it to, you know, give pleasure to millions and to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And I was like, wow, I wish I can do that. Now, and this might be like asking you which one of your children is your favorite children. But do you have like a favorite book of Lewis's or a favorite quote or kind of a favorite idea that he's sketched out in in one of his books? I have. I, I would say that I have. I can't narrow it down to one, but I can narrow it down to sort of a couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them uh, is the Four Loves of all the apologetic works. That one is my favorite because I think it it, it has all of the sort of ability to kind of wield logic, but it's also you know it was late in life. It was after he'd met Joy Davidman. It has a very mature, wise kind of <clears throat> reflection about what it means to love and to be loved and what it means if you cut yourself off from love. And it has that beautiful paragraph about locking, you know, if, if you cut yourself off from love and you lock yourself away, um, I, I can't, I can't even try to quote it. So I won't, but it's, it's this beautiful thing about what will happen, you know, if you don't open yourself to love. <clears throat> so, you know, I really love that one. Um, I'm also among his academic works. I am probably the only person who is a fan of the, what he called the Oh hell volume, the <laughs> uh, Oxford history of the English language, but he called it Oh hell. Uh, and and the volume that he wrote in that, which is about English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, so not Shakespeare, uh, but lots of lots of prose. And I mean, academic. I mean, maybe academics are, are are supposed to be funny, but we generally don't think they are. <laughs> it is hilarious. It is it is like you know the people he loves. He says such beautiful things about. He makes me want to read them. And the people he doesn't like, it's just like a sick burn, as my kids would say, <laughs> you know, and and I just feel like I know so much about all these writers that I've never read by reading it. So, you know, it show, it's this academic prose, but it just kind of zings. Um, and then fiction. Fiction is really hard. Uh, so I'll give you my two favorite Narnian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prince Caspian, which is a lot of people don't like as much, I think, but which has, my husband and I both agree, this very sort of autumnal feel um, and the older we get, you know, that the the more the the looking back to the golden age aspect mm-hmm. of it, you know, is, is is even though the the plot is like okay, they sit around for a while and then they go fight a battle and then they crowd, you know, it, the crowd, it, it's not it's not that much plot, but the description of what it means to look back to a lost golden age and to see in what ways you can and can't bring that golden age forward, I think are powerful. Um, and then I absolutely love the horse and his boy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Shasta and Erebus are the best couple in literature, and uh, the description at the end that they got married so they could fight more conveniently is exactly like me and Hedwin, and we <laughs> love it. Uh, and it's just it's a it's um it's sort of less cosmic and more personal than some of the other uh, Narnian Chronicles, and it's just you know such a great story. So, well, you're the managing editor of Christian History Magazine, and we spoke in a previous unapologetic episode about the importance of kind of looking back in order to sort of know how to do things in the future and and things like that and obviously when we talk about C.S. Lewis we're looking back we're looking back into Christian history but why do you think Lewis has had such a lasting legacy because we don't talk about him in a kind of past context he very much is relevant and is is read still Um, and you know there are lots of films that are still coming out of Lewis's fiction and things like that why has he got such a lasting legacy even though he was very much a character in the past? Yeah, I think part of it, it goes back to what I said about his sort of his ability to pack so much into into so little that that, uh, and I think that the fic that probably for many people, especially people who are Christians, it's the fiction that they, mm-hmm. you know that they know him for, you know, and the fiction it isn't perfect, but it's brilliantly written, and and just you know like he knows how to tell a story, 
Um, and he knows how to, you know, sort of tell a story that keeps you engaged and give you characters that you care about. And I think that a number of people um, have latched onto that, whether they know anything else about him or not. I, I have to tell you the story. So in um, 2013, well, I think it is, was the date we came over to, uh, to, to the, when they did the stone in Westminster Abbey. <laughs> um, so I can't, we covered that in the magazine. We did, uh, we did an issue around then that was called Seven seven literary sages and it was about not just lewis but tolkien and george mcdonald and jk jesterton dorothy sayers so but anyways part of that I, I came over and i went around with a photographer and we took a lot of pictures of oxford um and then i went to the the stone laying at westminster abbey and then uh we we, we flew into and out of dublin which we used to do a lot uh because there's uh, really good flights from dublin to the u.s so right before we flew home we were at uh trinity college dublin and we went to the the anglican service um and afterwards, they had they had uh, sherry and biscuits, and I said this would not happen in an American church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but they would give you sherry, but they it's actually so, just had sherry. So and when they saw that we had kids with us, somebody ran out and got biscuits. Uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm drinking my sherry and eating my biscuits, and I'm and I, and I'm and this woman is is asking sort of like why why are these crazy Americans you know why are we in Ireland? And I'm like you know well you know we're we're visiting Dublin, but before that we we were we were in England and we went to this. This delaying stuff about Lewis and, and and I said I'm covering it for this magazine, Christian History Magazine, and she looked at me and said, "Was Lewis particularly religious?" Wow! <laughs> like she knew he was a famous British author. In fact, you could you could argue that people have a famous Irish author. Right. Um, and and about ninety, and I was like, "Wow!" So I told <laughs> that story in the magazine. I'm like, that was very bizarre. Um, so any, all of that to say that the imaginative power of his fiction has won him a place, even among people who don't realize there's mm. so much more to him. Like I hope this woman went home and like found out he he wrote other books. Yeah, you know. But but even so, you know, if people know even only a small part of it, like what he believed is underneath is underneath all of that. I think mm -hmm. and available to people. But yeah, he just he was just such a good writer. <laughs> So I suppose that's that's one side that his sort of amazing lasting legacy. But there have been some people who have sort of criticised Lewis for being out of date and I guess at worst potentially racist or sexist. I mean, what would you say in response to some of those criticisms of Lewis? Uh, I actually wrote a wrote a wrote a paper about uh, sexism in that hideous strength once, uh, which was um, the title was something like "What's a nice What's a nice feminist like you doing in a book like this?" Um, <laughs> and, and so I. This is something I've wrestled with because I I love Lewis I abashedly love Lewis and Tolkien and you know and, you know and yet he is of his time um, and you know I I think that sometimes you have to read people of their time and remember that they are of their time mm -hmm. you know and so when I read Lewis I don't think so much about the you know the the especially in some of his early nonfiction, some of the really bizarre things he says about relationships between men and women. But I think about, you know, the Lewis who wrote The Four Loves, you know, and the Lewis that gave us uh, Orwell, Until We Have Faces, which I have not even mentioned at all, um, and which is an incredible, incredible book, you know, and the Lewis who gave us uh, Lucy, you know. <laughs> it's like, I get so much out of that that I, I feel myself willing to set aside some of the things that I don't know if he would have said them differently because he's not here now, you know, but, <laughs> the, but the, the, I know that that we're not as examined for him as they are for us. Like, like I think if an author sat down now 
and wrote some of the things Lewis wrote, that will be more problematic because we know more or we know better or, you know, we've thought about the issues in different ways. You know, so sometimes I feel like people look at those things in Lewis and think it excuses them being racist or sexist now. And I don't I don't think that. Yeah. But I think sometimes you can say, well, he really, you know, either he hadn't, you know, he had a blind spot in that area or it was his own, you know, his own time. And he wasn't sort of, you know, he wasn't psychic beyond his time. You know, and now would I write about marriage in the same way Lewis does, especially in mere Christianity? No. Uh, you know, but can I take all the good things that are in mere Christianity. And can I take the Lewis of the four loves writing about marriage? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very, very complicated. Um, and I don't want to tell people they have to write, read things that make them upset. You know, if somebody can't handle whatever they can't handle it. But I also think that it's important to read all sorts of things if you can. Yeah. And to, to make it more of a dialogue, you know, with the past and to be willing to read things that may challenge some things that you think. And at the end of them, you may come out and say, no, I think I'm right. Lewis was wrong. But you're willing to, to you would miss so much. You know, you, if you said, well, I'm not going to read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because Lewis said battles are ugly when women fight, you would miss the whole rest of The Lion, <laughs> the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, you would miss Lucy Pevensey. You know, yeah. And you shouldn't miss Lucy Pevensey if you can possibly, you know, help it. So. So I guess on the flip side of that, then, as a woman, how has Lewis impacted you personally and, and obviously your work, your career? That's also hard to answer because it's like so formational to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I encountered his writing and his thought when I was so young that it went into me when I was like, you know, five. Uh, so it's hard. But I just I've always wanted, like I said, I've always wanted to write like that. Mm -hmm. And I can't write like that, but I can try to write like that. And I think that makes me a better writer. Um, you know, to try for that very vivid, you know, jam-packed, tight kind of prose. I think reading all the Lewis that I've read um, has made me a better prose writer. Um, and I think that just, you know, that he's he's so foundational to my thought on just any number of things, you know, whether they have to do with, you know, society or culture or faith. Some of the things about that he said, you know, some of the things he said about women sort of bothered me but I also sort of shook my hands up well you know I'm a woman and I don't quite agree with that but but there was so much in there there were characters like Orwell and Lucy and Jill Pole um and uh, Jane Studdock and that hideous strength you know and the lady in Perilander that that, that that were such marvelously well-rounded and you know female characters to you know admire um and to be interested in that it didn't it didn't really bother me that much and this is going to be incredibly hard to whistle down again, but what do you think we can learn from Lewis? Oh, good grief. <laughs> well, lots of things. Mm -hmm. Not to be afraid of God um, and not to be afraid of the imagination. Um, and, and Lewis spent a lot of the early part of his life, I would sort of argue, sort of being not afraid of God, but he, you know, being very interested in his imagination and in study and in literature and in beautiful things thinking that god would not accept that mm. and when he came to faith he came to realize that he was coming to faith in a god who had created all of those things you know and and so that the myths that were out there the beautiful pagan myths that lewis admired he could go on admiring because he could see that there was a little bit of that would lead you to the true myth as he called it in that and and I think that a lot of people think, well, we only have to have 
you know, Christian art and Christian this and Christian that. And, and, and ironically, people then do that with Lewis. And I mean, if people want to go read Lewis all day, I am not going to stop. <laughs> but um, the, the, you know, we get to thinking we have to put a box around what God can do. Um, and I think when Lewis learned that God was big enough that he didn't have to put a box around what God could do, he could just let God do it. Um, I think that was a profound lesson for him. And I think it is a very profound thing for us. And I don't ever want to see people put it, making Lewis into the box. Yeah. If that makes sense. You know, making him into, oh, you know, we can't, you know, Lewis is fine. But he's like, you know, well, Lewis would, no, Lewis would have said, read all the books. Yeah. You know, and take from them the truth that you see, you know, and leave the rest. I guess sort of on that note, do you think there is anything that Lewis would say to modern Christians who are engaging with secular culture? I suppose in some senses, what we're seeing today is quite different from the culture that Lewis was speaking into in that, you know, a lot of the sort of non-Christians he was speaking to would have at least had like an undergirding of a kind of Christian story. And uh, for a lot of people, I guess, particularly in the UK, that would not be the case. Do you think Lewis would have any advice for Christians engaging in this secular culture? I think, I mean, I I don't know, I don't want to speak for Lewis, but, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot in him, as as there was in uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend of his. This idea that you just need to sort of do what you're doing in the most excellent way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he, despite the fact that the culture then may not have been as secular as the culture now, he viewed himself as speaking to a secular culture. When he went to Cambridge, when he left Oxford, and they gave him the professorship at Cambridge, and he gave this marvelous speech, and I can't pronounce the Latin, so I'm not going to try. Uh, but he said, and he said, I'm a dinosaur. I'm sort of like the last old Western man. And you, you know, all you secular people, you can, you can observe me. Uh, you know, so he, he already thought that his job was not to talk to the converted. It was, it was to talk to the unconverted. Um, specifically, I think, I mean, he did write things like letters to Malcolm Chiefly on prayer and the reflections on the Psalms that were directed at, at, at believers. <laughs> But an awful lot of his nonfiction was just sort of, I'm putting this out there in the marketplace of ideas. And then, um, you know, with the fiction, it was like, obviously, you know, Christians read it and get a lot out of it. And people would write, kids would write to him, and he would talk about the relationship of the Chronicles of Narnia to the Christian faith. But, you know, first and foremost, they were stories for his culture to enjoy and to find truth in. Um, And so I don't know that he would do things a lot differently, say things a lot differently if he was here Mm -hmm. today, because... You know, maybe what he saw were the beginnings, you know, of a greater secularization later, but that was the audience he was interested in talking to, to start with, I think. As we finish this podcast, do you think there's anything that Lewis would want to say to the church today? I guess church with a capital C, meaning across denominations, across sort of glo- the global picture. What what would Lewis want to say to the church? <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm not going to speak for C.S. Lewis again. Um, <laughs> But Lewis, and he didn't spend, you know, differences between denominations did not interest him all that much. Um, mm-hmm. Even the finer points of the theology of his own denomination denied it. He's like, you know, I just want to go to church and don't, you know, it, it, Christ said, feed my sheep, don't try experiments on my rats and, you know, don't give me any new hymns and stuff. But what I sense from Lewis, uh, I, I don't know if he would say this, but what I sense reading him is, is, is an incredible clarity um, around the basics, around the sort of mere Christianity aspect of it, around a creedal faith. Um, and, and I sense that, I mean, that's obvious in the nonfiction, but it's also undergirding the fiction. You know, the basic overall story of Narnia, you know, sort of helps you understand, you know, the, the Christian story in this world better. A- and that it would be good not to forget that. Um, 
And also not, uh, like he says, mere Christianity to go. He's like said, there are, you know, wonderful people who, you know, are going and exploring all the little rooms. You know, he says, but I'm, I'm in the hall and I'm going to tell you about the hall. You know, he would never want us to get so interested in exploring the little ins and outs of our own denomination, uh, denominations that, you know, we sort of forget what the basis is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that basic faith in, although I don't think he ever spells it out this way anywhere, but, you know, in the elements of the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. in a triune God who came and was incarnated and suffered and died and rose again and is coming back. That, you know, that's the Nicene Creed and that's at the heart of everything Lewis did. Um, and I, and I, if I can speak for him, I think he would say just sort of, you know, keep that, keep the main thing, the main thing. That, yeah. that That's the main thing. You know, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make sure that there's a link to where people can get hold of this wonderful issue of Christian History Magazine on on our website as well. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.